Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm on Al-Zwahiri is dead. He liked to breathe in the fresh air from his balcony until one breath would be his last. It was a terrorist, terrorist first. Yesterday, President Joe Biden spoke from his balcony, I suppose mocking the man. Justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. Truth. But see if you could pick up on the inaccuracy contained within this PBS report by Nick Schifrin. According to multiple officials I've talked to, a CIA drone uh, this weekend struck a safe house in downtown Kabul. I mean, it is really in the middle uh, of Kabul when Zawahri was on a patio. The missile was small enough just to hit that patio and according to a senior administration official, killed absolutely nobody else. Did you hear it? I'll isolate it further in this Amy Goodman Democracy Now! coverage. As he was standing on a balcony in the safe house. Get it now? It was not a safe house. It was at best a would-be safe house, a purported safe house, what was once thought of as a safe house. Not safe. And after a Hellfire missile, not a house. Zillow may still list it as a safe house, but that needs to be updated to a risk rubble. And you can't even get a risk rubble for below ask in this market. The strike was all the things that Biden claimed in his speech, including necessary and an act of justice. It was also a statement of our societal values. Guess you could say for better, for worse, but I would say for better. But what strikes one about the news is an RXP missile, if the one in question is Ayman al-Zwahiri. <laughs> was Ayman al-Zwahiri. What strikes me is how much table setting was needed to orient the audience Almost saying, now, this was about this thing called 9-11. It was a really bad attack on America. You might not remember it. It was like, oh, let's try to put it in more modern terms. Like when everyone was mean to Simone Biles after she pulled out of the vault, but actually worse in some ways. My reflection isn't a mere, wow, I'm getting old. It's more like, wow, what we were told would be a culturally defining moment seems not to have passed the historical test of creating wounds so deep that even future generations know where to find them, don't need to ask to know where they are. I guess the wounds created other wounds like the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and maybe those are the ones we're still tending to. Still, I don't think that 
the idea of the attack on Pearl Harbor, what 9-11 was likened to at the time, would have been so carefully explained to an audience paying attention in the year 1962, as yesterday's killing of a mastermind of 9-11 was explained to the audience of 2022. But of course, Al-Qaeda has faded in operational capacity, if not tempered in terms of their eagerness to do us harm. Still, it was a bit of a whiplash to have CNN reporters speak of the homeland. And they still worry in the coming years that Al-Qaeda could again regroup, organize itself to be able to carry out some kind of strikes against U.S. interests or even the U.S. homeland. CNN's Barbara Starr evoking a time of colored alerts and talk of the homeland. I guess some habits die hard. Also, some balcony dawdlers do. On the show today... I spiel about a word so horrible we can't possibly tell you what it is, but hope you understand why Beyonce made the choices she did. But first, Kate Shaw, law professor, yesterday on this program, explained what the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, could yet achieve. Today we will examine if it's been good strategy for some of America's biggest champions of the Equal Rights Amendment to act as if it actually is the 28th Amendment. Kate Shaw, next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The Equal Rights Amendment was a primary goal of the feminist movement of the 1970s. The idea of equality, however, took other forms after that. But as we discussed yesterday with Kate Shaw, professor at Cardozo Law School and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, there is actually a prevalent notion that we actually have the ERA as part of the Constitution. I began by asking Shaw about the recognized reality of the present, where the Constitution stops at 27 amendments. And my first question was, if there had been an ERA for decades, would other laws that we've passed along the way, like, say, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, still be necessary? Probably, yes. I mean, this, you know, this sort of the, the, the constitutional guarantee is... Um is sort of broad and it, I don't want to say aspirational because it's substantive as well, but you know, you could have individuals actually bring constitutional claims every time they think they're being discriminated against. But actually the way, you know, the constitution and its values actually end up reaching us and affecting our lives actually ordinarily has this kind of intermediate step of Congress actually passing laws that give kind of contours or, you know, or, or they, they give real more kind of substance and content to these broad constitutional guarantees because it's just, you know, people, constitutional litigation is extremely inefficient as a way to vindicate rights. So these rights are out there, say they're, you know, already out there. Um, now you're David Hume. <laughs> right. No, but like it's, you know, you have, they're floating. But it, right. Yeah. And so it, 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 it is, it's both more efficient and I think, um, you know, kind of more democratic, I suppose, for the elect representatives of the people to kind of actually give expression that's more detailed uh, to these broad constitutional guarantees. So, I, so my, my, that's a long answer, but I actually think, yes, those kinds of laws would still be required even if we already had an equal rights amendment in the Constitution. What, what laws wouldn't be required? I mean, 
so so the idea maybe is that, that sort of that both constitutional language changes constitutional culture and, you know, sort of changes workplace culture. So there, there, that's, I mean, I'm a little bit sort of offering a different answer to the first question that you asked, but yeah, so the, the, the fair pay, pay act, um, you know, I mean, look, the, 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 the protection against sex discrimination that is part of title seven of the civil rights act predates the, you know, what would have been the ratification in, in the seventies. Um, so I, that's sort of a historical counterfactual. It's hard to say, but you know, there, there is no, no, the, no. I know, but I know what you're saying. If this yeah. were passed, like we could play this game where we say, if this were passed in 1973, five, seven, whatever, yeah. um, it inevitably would have led, we can surmise to certain changes in norms, but also certain changes in laws. And what you're doing now is kind of hanging some leaves on that tree, that suppositional tree. Right, right. Yeah. That's, yeah. And, and, and I mean, one other thing to say, and, and this is, um, I think, kind of an unexpected but important byproduct of sort of whatever the answer to the metaphysical question about the current status of the ERA is, the kind of revival of interest in ratifying it has actually led to some state-level changes. So some states have passed state constitutional ERAs, though some already had, but some have just in recent years. So um, so they're, they're also, just in terms of how constitutional change happens, we are obviously governed by the laws, not just of the United States and the federal constitution, but our state constitutions and state statutes. And so there has actually been a decent amount of state level change that I think, you know, has some kind of causal link to this, you know, ERA revival and the energy around it. So there have been kind of concrete legal changes that we have seen just in recent years, I think in part, at least as result of the ERA activism. Mm. So hanging over our discussion, I think, is uh, the question of abortion and Roe and Dobbs. Now, from my perspective as a non-professor of law, ABC News analyst, and a co-host of Strict Scrutiny. So from this perspective, I look at the timing and say that even if the ERA passed and passed quickly, it wouldn't have had an impact. Well, it might have changed decision making around Roe, but the Roe decision was handed down in 73. Even the original Equal Rights Amendment introduced in 72 said it would take two years to ramp up and implement the amendment. And since Roe was decided on the bases that it was decided, which has since been struck down in the Dobbs decision, tell me if I'm wrong. There are Maybe some ways that the ERA could have affected the road decision if the road decision were crafted on a different basis. But just knowing what we have now, having an equal rights amendment would not automatically enshrine the right of abortion if the road decision was the controlling decision about abortion. I think that's basically right. But, you know, remember that sort of the two big opinions that are overruled in Dobbs are Roe from 73 and Planned Parenthood versus Casey from 1992. And I do think that if Roe had been decided in 73, we had had ratification a couple of years later. By the time the court reconsidered whether to retain or overturn Roe, which it very seriously thought about in 1992, you know, many, many commentators and observers thought that, that Roe was doomed and the court was going to overrule it. There were these, you know, three new Republican appointees. It's sort of similar to today, although obviously with a different result. Um, and the court there reaffirmed Roe and, you know, redefined the right in certain respects and in some ways grounded the right somewhat more in ideas of equality, at least in addition to these notions of privacy that had been at the core of the Roe decision, which is really grounded in, you know, the liberty protected by the due process clause, not really a whisper about equality in the Roe decision itself. I think by 92, if you had an equal rights amendment on the books, 
that would have supplied a, an important additional basis on right. which to find the Constitution protected a right to terminate or continue with a pregnancy. Um, right. So Casey will would have cited the ERA if there was an ERA, thus strengthening the law, giving uh, Alito and his ilk a higher burden to undo it. I think that's right. I mean, I do. You know, Casey did talk about the centrality of the abortion right to women's full kind of political and economic participation in the life of the nation. So there are references to the idea of equality, but it's not the centerpiece of the opinion. And I do think if you had an ERA, that would have been, you know, that would that would have been a very, very central part of the discussion and sort of the reconsideration of what the right is really about. And so I do think that Alita would have had a very different task before him in, you know, potentially uh, overruling whatever the right looked like under this historical counterfactual. Yeah. Then again, Alito's going to Alito, you can yes. argue. And the and it's not as if the Federalist Society would say, well, that's it. We can't do anything here, guys. So the politics of what got those six justices on the court would still be the politics. And, you know, maybe they'd find a way, probably they'd find a way to undo that right if they wanted to. But I, but I think it's a really nice point because there is this, I mean, there is like a paragraph, if that, uh, that engages with this kind of alternate equal protection equality rationale for the abortion right. It's incredibly dismissive. And I don't think Alito could have gotten away with that if, you know, if Casey had more, had, had focused more on equality and if there had been an equal rights amendment. Um, but of course you're right. Like they, you know, mm. it's not like a model of intellectual integrity, the current opinion. There's no reason to think that some different version of the opinion would have been. Right. So in our conversation, I mean, I started from what I thought was the surprising part, the, oh my gosh, uh, it actually may be an amendment, though maybe not. And then we went through, I'm just fascinated by the rivulets of Arcana. But if we were to back up and say, would an equal rights amendment be a straightforward change to how Americans live their lives? If you had to make a prediction, a counterfactual, what would you say? We So we're living, it's 2022, and we've had an equal rights amendment for, let's say, 40 years. Would America be a very different place? I think that because we have given the courts so much power to interpret what is in the Constitution, this court assuming all the nominations and confirmations have fallen the way they have, which, you know, maybe that none of, maybe things are, are sort of, a, you know, a, a butterfly um, kind of metaphor here. So maybe everything is different if the ERA is enacted, but assuming that the personnel of the court looks the way it has looked over the past 40 years, I, I think there's a good argument that they would find a way to narrowly read the ERA so that it didn't much change the kind of, the sort of constitutional law or our lives. And, but all that said, I don't think that means that ratification, acceptance of ratification, you know, a, a new sort of congressional movement, there's been some action in Congress already to extend, the House has already actually extended the deadline that the Senate hasn't done so. But if we were to actually add the, the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution today, I actually think it would make a real difference today. And and, and that's for the following reasons. Um, in the 70s, you know, we actually were amending the Constitution in the 1970s. We are in this moment in which we have lost the habit of amending the Constitution in a way that I think is deeply problematic, right? So, you know, 92 is the last time we amended the Constitution. So for most young people, They've not seen a constitutional amendment in their lifetimes. And that suggests, right, the document is one that was, you know, 
It was drafted by people who, you know, we, we, we didn't participate in the drafting. We have sort of no connection to it at all. And, and I think that's incredibly unhealthy as a democratic matter. And I also think that while we are in a moment of pretty profound democratic distortion and dysfunction, and if we think the Constitution is sort of out of reach and cannot be amended, I think that contributes to sort of a sense of apathy and actually to the kind of distortion and dysfunction. So I actually think amending the Constitution by adding the ERA could make conceivable things like abolishing the Electoral College, which would require a constitutional amendment, you know, could bring into focus the possibility of other kinds of constitutional change. Um, That's, you know, an answer that doesn't speak directly to the question of sex equality, but I think it would be an important effect of potentially actually adding this to the Constitution. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think that I'm sure you'd agree that it's a symptom of the greater scleroticism that characterizes our political process. But at the same time, we hail this supposedly living constitution, but I'm not saying it's on life support, but it is housebound. It's not getting out much. You know, it's not living its best life if it's a living con- if it's a living document and a living constitution. I Yes. Um, I, I mean, right. The con- the, 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 there's a stranglehold that these sort of adherence to the idea of a dead, dead, dead constitution right now have on it and amending the constitution. Again, it would still need to be served, you know, the, the, the kind of ultimate arbiters of the meaning of the constitution, anything that we would add to it right now are still the nine justices on the Supreme Court. So I think that that is also part of any kind of agenda of meaningful reform is actually reducing the power of the Supreme Court. Um, because I think it's right that especially given what we have seen in the last term, no matter how potentially transformational a constitutional amendment might be, you know, it could be, you know, read in incredibly narrow ways by the justices on the Supreme Court. So I think that's that's an important part of a reform agenda, too. So I think, you know, that's true about the ERA. That's true about any kind of constitutional amendment. I think it's it's an incredibly worthwhile endeavor, even if you know that it's going to, you know, ultimately be interpreted by this Supreme Court. So I think it's worth doing, but I also think it needs to be paired with sort of real reform conversations about the Supreme Court and the power of the Supreme Court. So given what the ERA can do, you've convinced me, why isn't it a bigger part of activism? Why isn't it higher up on the agenda of the uh, campaigns or movements that are are charged? I went to the Women's March. Um, We see so many protests, especially around the Dobbs decision. You know, if there's a speaker and they have a list of demands, sixth down will be let's pass the ERA. It almost seems like a uh, pro forma thing to say. Why isn't it like it was 40, 50? years ago where ERA now is the message of these marches. I think it's because it's not the action items are a little bit unclear given that ratification has been achieved. Um, And, you know, I I also really you think you think (laughs) that the people aren't demanding it because those people think we have it? Not just that they, I I don't know that it's clear that what, what needs to be done. So I think that the demands are a little bit less concrete and clear than, you know, Nevada needs to ratify. Virginia needs to ratify. I think you saw very, very powerful mobilization when, you know, what needed to happen was clear. It's just less clear what needs to happen now. If it is, you know, Congress extending the deadline, um, if it is, you know, Potentially, so we haven't talked about this, but in addition to the you know late breaking ratifications, several states that earlier ratified the ERA have rescinded their ratifications, and there's a question about whether those rescissions are effective and whether new ratification needs to happen in those states. I think there isn't a push to sort of ratify anew because there's concern that doing so would acknowledge the you know 
effectiveness of the rescissions. And there's a real debate about whether you can even rescind a ratification. Yeah. And so, but I just think that is the path is not clear. And I think that that that's why it's not at the top of, you know, sort of most people's demand list. But, um, but I think that just like getting Congress to actually extend the deadline and force the question of the efficacy of these ratifications, you know, is relatively concrete. I think it is just uh, less concrete than Virginia, we got to get to 38, um, which was, you know, an incredible accomplishment. But what's next is, I think, a little murkier. And I think that's probably why we don't see it at the top of sort of, you know, calls for action at rallies and the like. Mm. So we probably we started with where my curiosity led me, which is I never knew that. But let's go back. First of all, the ERA, as I quoted, has three clauses, the uh, the important clause, what it really does, not just the timeline for doing it and the uh, verbiage that all amendments have to have is is what I said, that there will be no discrimination. Uh, The rights shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex. Is that perfect? Are people who are in favor to this day of the ERA, do they look at that and said, actually, that language doesn't need to be changed or improved upon at all? You know, I think there's a recognition that that the language, people can quibble over what the language says, but a lot will come down to interpretation. And so it makes more sense to push for adoption and then for kind of expansive interpretation rather than to quibble over language. Oh, because I, I would assume that it always happens the other way, that you, for all the quibbling over language, it gets interpreted how it's going to get interpreted anyway. So why quibble beforehand? <laughs> Right. Well, we'll quibble. We'll, we'll we'll quibble both ways, right? But I yeah. think that no no language is Bilateral going quibbling. Yes. Right. Is going to is going to be perfect. So, but I do think that advocates actually think that it has stood the test of time pretty well. The language of the nineteen, you know, the original sort of seventy uh, version of the ERA. Kate Shaw is a professor of law at Cardozo Law School. She contributes to ABC, and she's one of the very wise three-headed hydra that <laughs> pontificates about the law in the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which I love. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. The recording artist slash secular goddess Beyonce put out an album, Renaissance, a few days ago and took back one part of it yesterday. The song titled Heated contains this lyric. Which, if you couldn't hear, was spazzing on that ass, spaz on that ass. This happened to be the exact word and supposed ableist slur that prompted Lizzo to do a retroactive re-release of her song Girls a month and a half ago. Original lyrics, I'm a spaz, I'm about to knock somebody out. She then addressed her fans saying she quote, never wants to promote harmful language. So the new lyric was, hold me back, I'm about to knock somebody out. Harmful language not promoted. Lizzo was responding to criticisms put forward by regular listeners and disability advocacy groups alike. The same with Beyonce. Of Beyonce's use of the word, the UK disability rights organization Scope tweeted, Disabled people's experiences are not fodder for song lyrics. This must stop. I will tell that to Blind Faith, Blind Willie McTell, Blind Willie Johnson, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Melon, Third Eye Blind, and everyone who ever recorded Blinded by the Light to take one ableist slur or supposed ableist slur. And don't get me started on crazy. Just because, now, to be fair... 
to be clear, to be fair and clear, just because some lyrics were once acceptable doesn't make them acceptable for all time going forward. And in both the cases of Lizzo and Beyonce, the change was undertaken willingly. I'd imagine if either artist knew when writing the song or collaborating on the writing of the song, if, if either artist knew what she knows now, she wouldn't have put it in the song to begin with. At least that's what they say. I believe them. I would also say that if an artist refused to change a lyric based on the charge of ableism, that would be the prerogative of the artist as well. So I do not object to the complaint. I do not object to the change. And for the record, I don't object to the inclusion of the word in the song to begin with. What I object to is, and what you should object to, is my telling you the story in a way other than the straightforward way I put forth. So you could know what the hell we were talking about. The New York Times covered the story quite capably by writing, quote, in heated, a dance hall inspired track. The singer uses the word spaz and spazin in an energetically recited portion of the song. That's a callback to the freestyles at some ballroom events. But other media outlets simply could not bring themselves to offer the audience the respect of clarity. Here was the BBC. Next, singer Beyonce is going to re-record one of her new songs because it contains a derogatory word often used to demean people with a form of cerebral palsy. Her first new album in six years is called Renaissance. It was released on Sunday. And one song, Heated, which was written by the rapper Drake, uses the word that we're choosing not to repeat. ABC Network News, likewise, had us guess at the word. The Australian Today Show wouldn't utter it either. USA Today did mention the word spaz, but then served up a list of other ableist words not to use. The exact same list they published after the Lizzo development. All the phrases USA Today recommended avoiding were reasonable, bordering on obvious, like saying, don't say I want to kill myself unless you really want to kill yourself. And then at the end of the article, they included a couple links for people who really want to kill themselves. Don't say, I'm so OCD if you're not OCD. They also, however, linked to an ableist dictionary, or I guess you could say an anti-ableist dictionary put together by Lydia XZ Brown that put forward the following as examples of ableist language. Bonkers, deluded, obese, depressing, which, quote, becomes ableist when used as shorthand for sad or disappointing. After noting that ableism is violence, the list offered a long selection of adjectives that are still okay. These included pathetic and gross, which I predict will one day land on the no-fly list. Don't, don't, don't do the etymological investigation on those two. If you know me, you know I'm very suspicious of the idea of evil words and that the utterance or conveyance of a word, which is to say an idea, that that could undo us all. Almost three years ago, I engaged in this argument during season one, and my employment status wound up being greatly affected by that. But my principles haven't really changed. What has changed is back then, I thought that such compelled speech or non-speech as more like the top of a slippery slope. Now I look at things as being further along that incline. I still fail to see any logic, any good, any benefit to society in a news organization suppressing the proper conveyance of information to their audience. But I, but I know there are imperatives for an artist who wants to stay in the good graces of their audience or any communicator who avoids using a word or phrase out of politeness in social settings or even in a news context. That's all legitimate. And Right here in this spiel, I put forward a lot of reasons to say that's a reasonable complaint. I shall relent. 
But if relenting is the only acceptable path, then we're not really having a discussion. And those who refrain from these words or thoughts aren't really making a decision if that's the only decision that's allowed. And of course, if certain words are medical conditions, while simultaneously being slang for negative character traits, yeah, plainly that could be harmful and painful for those afflicted by those traits. So asking for a change is absolutely fine. But in terms of what harms us more, the words themselves being used versus perpetuating the notion that these words, ever spoken or written, will necessarily constitute a wound, it is the latter idea. In order to anathemize the use of a word, we act as if the word plainly oozes poison, affecting any person as surely as an acid would burn or a cactus needle would sting. But words aren't like that. This idea is treating words or thoughts. Again, I've made this point a few times, but words are thoughts in mimetic form. It's like treating words or thoughts as if they have a magical quality, like an incantation. And all of that, that idea, it's gotten a lot of traction in many quarters of our society that bears a type of deliberation that I think should be unconstrained. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, loves the ERA, not a fan of OPS+. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>